Hey everybody, this is Craig Cottle. Welcome back to part two, part two that is, of my Nature Immersion podcast. So if you haven't listened to part one, you're probably not going to find this one real useful. Well, you will find it useful, don't get me wrong. You will find it useful, but you'll get more from it. You'll learn more from it if you go back and do part one. Because basically in part one, I just offered up the quiz, what I refer to as the tourist test. And in today, I'm going to go over that quiz and see what we can learn from it. So thanks for joining me. So glad to be here with you for part two. So let's get right into it. Uh, part uh, Question number one, can you name a bird from your area? I hope you can. If you can't, there's fantastic resources. And one of the things I recommend for you is check out the, the closest university or the state university, whatever state you're located in. And in that manner, you'll be able to find a lot of resources. Just look up ornithology. Ornithology is basically the study of birds. And so you can look up ornithology and find all kinds of good resources. Number two, what time of day during daylight hours is least active for birdsong and calls? Well, that's usually sometime around midday. And the reason for that is because it's going to be the warmest, hottest portion of the day. And in summertime, that is. And so everything is going to take a break. A lot of animals are very active right at daybreak when the sun comes up and right before the sun goes down. And so in midday, they're just conserving energy. Number three, when a bird is singing from a low perch, how will a feeding deer respond? So this is everything. There is no never. I like to say it this way. Never, 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 always. Never say never and never say always. There's the answers to these questions. There's no absolutes. There's a lot of subjective matter and information that's going to be shared here. But one way that uh, this question can be answered, when a bird is singing from a low perch, how will a feeding deer respond? And basically the answer is no, it won't do anything. It doesn't, I mean, a, a, a bird on a low perch is, is a bird that does not sense any danger. Now, if a bird flies from a low perch and goes up high, a deer will most likely recognize that. You might not even see that it's paying much attention, but you can be guaranteed that it's paying attention. Number four, can you name a nocturnal animal from your area? Those are critters that run around at night, right? So raccoons and possums and skunks. Uh, snakes, for the most part, are nocturnal as well. So those are animals that that uh, are running around at night. Number five, name one snake in your area that is venomous and name one of its identifying characteristics. So a lot of uh, snake folks will find ways to help memorize what a snake looks like and they'll say things like a diamond-shaped head which is not absolutely true there are a lot of non-venomous snakes that have diamond-shaped heads and there are venomous snakes that sometimes flatten their head and they don't look diamond-shaped and the pupils and and you know slits on a venomous snake and rounded pupils on a non-venomous snake these are things that i don't know why you're that close i mean just you know it is what it is but you should know the venomous snakes. You shouldn't be picking up anything, in my opinion. But, but uh, yeah, the better thing to do, in my opinion, is to know the habitat and where they like to hang out. And that way you can avoid those areas. That's a good way to avoid getting snake bit. Number six, what a deer's most likely response to an approaching human. There's a sequence of events. First thing they're going to do is they're going to freeze and watch more often than not, depending upon how fast it's coming through. Um, the human, that is. So they'll stand and watch, and then they will bound off. And when they bound off, oftentimes they will, what's called deer snorting. 
and they're blowing air from their nose. And the reason they're doing this is they're actually blowing air out to remove any sort of scent particles in the air so that when they breathe back in, they can actually smell what's going on around them a little bit more clearly. Uh, the other reason that they're, or the other thing they're going to do oftentimes for a white-tailed deer is they're going to throw their tail up. And they're going to wag it around as they, as they run as a sign to other deer in the area. As you, number seven, as you walking through a forest, you notice several golf ball sizes, mass of fur, skulls, and feathers littered about. What are these most likely to be? Those are most likely to be what's called owl pellets, which owls will eat a bird, for example, if it catches it and sit on its perch and let it digest and there's certain particles like feathers and bones and stuff of that nature that may not digest very well and so they'll regurgitate those out and spit them out and you'll see them a little bit smaller than well it depends upon the size of the owl but about the size smaller than a golf ball eight what common bird has a white breast and sits near roadways in our area that's a red-tailed hawk in our area your area might be different you might not have a bird that does that but one of the things that uh, red-tailed hawk sitting next to the road is an indicator of is that wildlife is not real abundant in that area they can't find it in their natural habitat away from humans and away from roadway so they sit next to a roadway to get it and so that's somewhat of an indicator that hey the ecosystem's not incredibly healthy there Although, most animals are animals of opportunity, so they'll sit where they can get food. Number nine, name one way you can easily check the weather before going outside. Just use an app. It's the best way, actually. Um, I monitor the weather quite a bit because I teach and do so much stuff outside. And I can tell you for certainty that your typical news weather station, news source, and their weather that they present on the news is dramatized. And I'm sure you know that, but if you don't, then just quit watching the TV. Oh my gosh, when it comes to weather, just don't pay attention to it. Get an app and then use it. I just use the Weather Channel app is what I use. Um, number 10, what direction does most of the heavy rains come from at your house? I can't tell you that. The reason I ask this question is that it just helps you understand prevailing wind patterns and prevailing weather patterns. And so... I try to, when I'm teaching kids and when I'm teaching people that are brand new, I try to take them back to where they're real familiar. And most of them will know what part of their house the raindrops start hitting at first. And so that's a good thing to help them go, okay, so what direction do you think that is? And then it helps them start to understand direction. What type of tree is lightning most likely to strike in your area? There's some data here for us in Kentucky that that locust trees get hit a lot by uh, on at a higher percentage than other trees now uh, whether that's because of the actual makeup of the tree or the fact that locust trees are you know pioneer species of trees and they'll often find be found singularly in an open field um, who knows but that is a tree that is most often to get hit in this area i had a forestry professor tell me that one uh let's see hmm which trees are most dangerous in a windstorm? Name only one. Think about it. The ones that are most dangerous, well, locust tree. I wouldn't be getting under a locust tree if there's a lightning storm. But any conifer is going to be easier to break down than your typical deciduous tree. And a lot of areas have these Bradford calorie pears in the area. They're terrible trees because they, they break a lot. All right. Uh, name a tree that is good to hunker down by during a severe storm. 
So anything it's going to provide a lot of cover. So a large deciduous, like a good big oak that's going to shed water from you from above. But at the same time, you can get behind the tree that's large so that it's not likely to get torn out of the ground. And you provide a windshield from it as well. If the weather is not particularly stormy, it's just a rain, then by all means get under some sort of pine or cedar or something of that nature. All right. Name one plant that grows at or near your house. Hopefully you can do that. Name one plant in your area that is harmful to humans. Uh, one of the things I like to point out is uh, Japanese yew. That's a real ornamental tree that's around a lot of people's houses in my neck of the woods here in Kentucky. And that is a very toxic plant. All right. Name one plant in your area that can be used to treat insect bites and stings. I don't know if I said I don't remember saying that one before. Um, that was number 16. Plantain is a good one. Plantain is a, a real good one for bites and stings. I'll just name one. List number 17. List two trees that produce mast, oaks and hickories. Mast are basically uh, nut fruit. Um, number 18. Name five plants that are common in your area. You should be able to do that, I hope. Number 19. Name a species of plant or tree that always grows near water. Uh, sycamore trees typically like to grow around water. Jewelweed grows around water. Those are just two for you. When you turn the faucet on at your house, where does the water come from? That's a great question, you all. I know I said that in part one, but that's a great question. You should know where your water comes from. When I'm teaching school classes, if I have the opportunity, I will take them to the location and show them where their water comes from. And man, that's a great lesson. That is a great way to go. That right there is where we get our water. And so, yeah, we should do everything to clean it. So, I mean, it teaches the kids, hey, if they go swimming there, boating, or they're in that area, if they're throwing fish guts back into it, or if they're pissing in it, or something of that nature, then, you know, that leaves an impression on them. All right. 21. 180 degrees is what cardinal direction? That is south. 22. If there is no sun shining and you need to walk in a straight line for several hundred yards through a thicket, how would you do it? Personally, I would probably utilize a compass and I would set my compass and look down my azimuth and find a tree that I can definitely distinguish from everything around it and walk to it. And then I would do the same thing. If I run into some sort of obstacle, like I might run into a multi-floor rose bush or something of that nature, then I'm still taking that shot over that tree, trying to find over that multi-floor rose bush, finding that tree. That way, when I walk out and around the obstacle, which might be again a rose bush, a pond, a lake, it might be any number of things, then I can go back and find that tree when I get there. And there's a specific direction or way to do that uh, to cross around obstacles. And if you don't know what that is, then pick up our book. Essential Wilderness Navigation. It's a good book. It's got a whole section on that in there. All right, number 23. Name your favorite thing to do outside. Hmm. Number 24. What is the most dangerous spiders of our area and what marks markings identify it? Um, it's really good to study your, your uh, problematic spiders. If you study them, then you'll find out that they're probably not as scary as you think they are because most spiders are going to be, most of your toxic spiders are going to be 
doing everything they can to stay away from you. Well, most spiders do, okay? But when you're walking down a trail, you're not going to be running into a brown recluse spider web. And if you don't know why, then you need to study brown recluse. And because that kind of sort of stuff keeps people from going outside. And so I like pointing that out. All right. Um, 25, what is what was the indigenous culture of your area? So for ours here, it was the Shawnee and Cherokee primarily. But that uh, the reason I always like to ask that question for survivalists is you should study the primitive skills and primitive ways of the indigenous culture of your area. Because if you lose all your tools and you went back to basically how they did things. And so understanding how they did things will help you get out of a sticky situation. Number 26, what key species is missing today from our local forest? I don't remember asking that question before either. But for us here in this part of the world in Appalachia, it's the American chestnut tree. That's a big one. Number 27, what is one way you can forecast the weather with the woods? So the big thing here is barometric pressure, you all. And barometric pressure has an effect, particularly when you're having a low-pressure system where uh, barometric pressure is lowering. Um, because of that, some things will respond in kind, particularly... If you can pay attention to cricket sounds, crickets will increase the rate in which they make sound as the temperature rises. So if you recognize that, hey, a cricket is doing 30 calls every 30 seconds and then all of a sudden it's only doing 10, then that means the temperature is the barometric pressure is lowering, which could be a good indicator of rain. Same thing is true for barometric pressure lowering. You'll often see that forces you to be able to see some of the bottom portion of leaves because of this lower lowering of barometric pressure which causes um, basically uh, it's a very interesting phenomenon but you'll be able to see the bottoms of leaves all right number 28 what does the presence of many frogs indicate about an ecosystem well that means that it's a pretty healthy ecosystem which is a good thing uh, what species gets more numerous on the north side of hills versus the south side uh, that that can be a lot of different things, a lot of different things. But what I was trying to get at is that a south-facing hillside is going to get more sun than a north-facing hillside. And so sp species of trees and plants that need a lot of sunlight and cannot exist without it, you'll see those more numerous on the southern side or southern-facing hillside versus species of trees that are real shade tolerant that don't need as much shade. You'll see more of them on a north-facing hillside. All right. What is the best natural tender in your area to start a fire? In my opinion, in my area, it is cedar bark. Number 31. Name one type of call emitted by wildlife that will affect the behavior of many species of birds or animals. Owls and hawks. Predatory birds really affect smaller animals in any particular wildlife setting. When planting garden, tell me something important about planting corn. Well, don't plant two kernels of corn right on top of them one another if you're not going to go back and cull one of them out that's one thing and don't plant them too deep if you plant them too deep they don't get enough sunlight to be able to sit down that root system and they're going to need when they pop out of that ground they're going to need that sun all right <coughs> number 33 when you're going to pack a backpack should the heaviest item in your pack be on the top bottom or in the middle depends upon the size of the pack but you should have the heaviest thing sitting right on your hips really close to the small of your back as best you can. So more than likely that means on the bottom, 
but again, packs are shaped differently. So the key is you want the heaviest items to be riding on your hips, not on your shoulders. Number 34, have you ever tried to track an animal? Yes, I have a few million times. Uh, I always ask that question to see if people like tracking and what have you. Number 35, if you notice that the distance between steps of something or someone you're tracking increases several inches, what does that usually indicate? Well, that usually indicates that they've sped up and took off. So if you're tracking a deer and all of a sudden the spacing gets large between tracks, then that deer probably recognize you're coming. All right, number 36, what is the main difference between a dog track and a cat track? Well, there's several, but the first thing that's most easily noted is dog tracks will almost always show claw marks, whereas cat tracks will not. Uh, both of them have four toes. Both of them have a heel pad. Um, the overall shape, if you draw an outline around the track, I'll just give you two things here. There's several, because I just wrote an article on this for Backwoodsman Guide, Survival Guide. It's a great magazine. Um but the other big one that's real quickly seen is that if you draw an outline around a, a dog track, a canine track, then it's going to be shaped much like an oval, like an egg. Whereas if you draw a circle around the outline of a cat track, it's more often a circular. Real easy to see that too. All right. What characteristics differ, differentiates white oaks from red oaks? There are several. But white oaks are rounded on the outside of their leaves and red are more pointed on the ends of their leaves. Do you know what any of the following mean? UTM, USNG, or MGRS? Those are all different grid systems for wilderness navigation. UTM is Universal Transverse Mercator. USNG is United States National Grid System. And MGRS is Military Grid Reference System. Number 39, can you name one species of plant in your area that you... You can make a salad of and it not be bitter. Yes, I can. I hope you can too. My choice would be ladies' thumb. And it is really, really prominent right now this time of year. And I'm looking at the end of September. You need three things to make a fire. Which one is missing? Oxygen, fuel source, and I said blank. And the thing that's missing is an ignition source. Number 41, name a type of rock, if any, from your area. Limestone, sandstone. Those are two that are pretty common in my area. Number 42, write down some things you should take with you on a short day hike. I don't remember asking that question either. may have skipped a few of these. Number 42, write down some things you should take with you on a day hike. You should take with you every time you go on a day hike, even if it's just an hour long, the things that you would need to be able to survive a night outside. You may not be comfortable. You may not get any sleep, but at least it'll be the things that'll help you survive. Some sort of shelter. Meaning, you know, at the very least, a 55-gallon drum garbage bag, an ignition source for building fire, and make sure you have the ability to get plenty of water or to find water or take the water with you. All right, look around you. Can you see some natural food where you sit? I love doing that with people outside. Can they see something where they sit? Number 44, does moss grow on the north side of trees? I'm sure it does grow on the north side of trees somewhere, but it also grows on the southeast and west side of trees. Um, this is one of those common misconceptions that moss always grows on the north side of trees. Here's what moss does. Moss loves moisture. And so if it is on an isolated tree in the middle of an opening and 
the only sunlight that is hitting it is what's on the southern facing side of the tree, then the north facing side of the tree is not going to get as much sunlight and it'll have more moisture there because it doesn't dry out as fast. And so it'll commonly find itself on the north side of a tree. However, in a wilderness area, because sunlight um, is subjected to the forest canopy, then you're going to have a lot more issues there and it'll grow anywhere in a forest. It won't, well, it won't grow anywhere, but it's not going to be just on the north side. hope that makes sense. Number 45, does running water always lead to civilization? Absolutely not. It does not, particularly for us here in Kentucky, where we have what's referred to as the car system, which is the geological formation under the earth where a lot of water will go into a sinkhole and just never come back up uh, in a near vicinity. I mean, it might come up two miles away. So, you know, we're studying this in Master Natural course right now, and there's an area in Lexington, Kentucky, for those of you who are familiar, um, where there is, a, there is a sinkhole that water goes into on a golf course, and it comes up five miles later. The water comes up five miles later um, down, down in a different part of town. And uh, uh, stormwater and water stream management people, the way they determine this is they put dyes in water, and then they go find out where that water's coming up at, and, uh, and they can see where it comes up at. Number 46, do the number of rings of a tree tell you how old it is? Yes, yes it does. All right, uh, do bear hibernate in the winter? Not always. Uh, up north, most likely, yeah. But down here in um, uh, temperatures where it doesn't get extremely cold and we don't have vast amounts of snow like here in Kentucky, they may or may not hibernate. And if they do hibernate, sometimes it might just be for a short while, uh, maybe a week or two. All right, number 48, why do leaves turn color in the fall? Well, that's the process of photosynthesis, boys and girls. So what happens is it's triggered by um, um, a shorter amount of sunlight. And because there's a shorter amount of sunlight, which is the root cause of photosynthesis, the sugars that are in the leaves start to dwindle and to save itself. It basically shuts down the leaves and dumps them so that the sugars that are in the tree can be preserved. It's kind of an interesting thing. And so those sugars are a key driver. Uh, there's a lot more chemical things going on inside that leaf that causes all that. But that, that's a big driver for the color of that leaf. So something to keep in mind. All right. Number 49. Can you determine a species of an animal by its poop? So, yeah, yeah. So, basically, you can look at, for example, uh, canines almost always will have a uh, pointed end on both ends of its poop. Um, bears and raccoons, for example, theirs is truncated, which means it's kind of like cut off like a guillotine. Um, cats are segmented poop, and they'll often have pointed ends, but the, it's segmented and won't come out in like one turd. It'll come out in several different segments. Um you know, some animals drop it in pellets, some drop it in small pellets, some in uh, elongated, long, uh, larger pellets. So, yeah, you can definitely look at, you know, for for example, a deer is usually going to drop it in pellets. But the reason I put this question down uh, for this particular test in this class is because somebody sent me a pile of deer poop the other day. It was just runny. And that's because that it animal is eating more herbaceous, greeny green material than it is, you know, nut fruit and stuff of that nature. 
And so it's one of those things that the size and shape and consistency of animal scat is going to be incredibly dependent upon the food that it's eating, which I think is an obvious point. But I think it's one of those things a lot of people believe that scat has absolutes and there are no real absolutes in nature. Never, 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 always. All right, number 50, what, if anything, intimidates you regarding nature? And I like people to just address this within themselves so that they know, hey, man, there's, hey, I'm scared to death of the sounds that come out at night. That's one of the things that we're going to do over on the Nature Reliance Media podcast is we're going to have forest sounds and talk about the things that you can hear while you're out there and why you should or should not be concerned. I mean, if you hear certain sounds that maybe you should um, – do different things and other times you're like just enjoy it it's not going to bother you that that animal's not going to bother you at all so anyway those are the answers to the tourist test thank you this has been a longer podcast because i went through all the answers not just the questions but again share this with anybody you can write these down type these up and you can have them as well so that way you have the ability to help others understand more about what's going on around them. And if you find that you don't have answers to these questions, then by all means, join us over at Nature Reliance School as we teach classes. Uh, in a survival class, there's going to be basically uh, at any point in time, nearly every one of these 50 questions is going to be answered because understanding what's going on around us is a necessity to do survival right. And then also be looking, looking us up on uh, nature immersion classes. We had our first one a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago when I'm recording this, and uh, it was such a huge hit that we're definitely going to be doing more of those. So that's it. Thanks for joining me, Craig Cottle, co-host of the Survival Show podcast, owner-director of Nature Reliance School here in Central Kentucky, where we also teach all over the country and are happy to travel to you. So I think that's it. As always, we really appreciate you supporting us in all the ways that we give you an opportunity to do so. Uh, check out our sponsors in the description below. Check out the links and ways for the survivalshow.com website where you can support the podcast if you like what you're hearing, if you feel like you're learning from it, if you feel like you're being enriched, then uh, throw us a couple of dollars there, boys and girls. We really appreciate it. And uh, we really appreciate all of you who have already been doing that. It's, we're just, it's just been incredible. Thank you so much. As always, keep it simple, be positive, and stay sharp. Thank you.